Welcome to Scholars and Sense. It's the podcast that takes a deep dive into the issues of the day. We do so with thoughtful conversation, and we rise above the noise and talking points. With the help of my colleagues, we get to the heart of the matter. I'm Bill Bennett, alongside my co-hosts, Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hanson. Conrad, Victor, let's jump in. Something we don't talk about a lot, the American economy, corporate tax rate will be among the highest in the world, if not the highest in the world. I heard someone say, well, you know, why kill the golden goose? Why do this? We had such a great production with the golden goose. And I I was yelling at the TV. I said, because the golden goose's name was Donald. That's why they're killing the golden goose. It seems to be a sufficient reason to not do something or to do something if it's the opposite of what President Trump did. But can this make sense? To increase corporate tax rate this high? I mean, in the end, that's going to hurt all of us, isn't it? Uh, I think that you've you've got it right. As we've discussed in previous uh, meetings we've had, the only argument that the Democrats have had in the last five years is Trump is evil and everything he does is evil. And they're still scrambling after that before the the, the terrible uh, stench that they created around him. Uh, is is blown away by a sober uh, retrospective look at the fact that he was actually quite successful and, and that the heinous accusations against him up to and including trying to incite an, an insurrection and the vandalization of the Capitol were rubbish. He didn't do that. And, and so they're rushing on the basis of the only argument they've got, fear of Trump, to uh, to get through a radical agenda. And the, the mysteries are, what role is the president playing? Is he really at the head of this, or is he just happy to be carried along? I wouldn't know that. I, 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 he, it baffles me in that respect. But on your economic point, of course, you're right. It's an insane thing to do. The slightest step that leaving demand in the system is a more efficient way of creating jobs and economic growth than than uh, overtaxing people and trying to create jobs through the uh, through the tax system, and um, and, and and through the uh, hirings and manipulations of the government employees and and special programs. And it, it, it is absolutely the wrong thing to do. I will say I don't see any evidence they're going to get the full tax bill through. But uh, having said all that, I I subside. I mean, Victor, I mean, am I talking nonsense? No, I think do no harm was the, the operative philosophy. All, he inherited the foundations of a great economy pre-COVID. All he had to do was let it go back to its natural state. So we, what we did is we created $6 trillion for this Trump stimulus and then the next stimulus and I guess this infrastructure. So we have all this funny money in the economy right when people are being let go and they're re-emerging, I should say, from the lockdown. So there's all this pent-up demand. Here in California, uh, Housing prices have gone up 10% in the last 90 days. Gas is up $1 a gallon, and we have a shortage of timber. I just built a deck around my house, and he said the price of the materials for the deck, the wood, and the treks has gone up 50% this year. And uh, cars, I bought a truck after 16 years. The cars were 9 to 10% more than last year. So we're getting... I guess what we're saying is we're getting enormous demand, and a lot of it's because of the stimulus, a lot of it's the pent-up eagerness to get out. At the very time this government is doing what? It's trying to discourage supply by returning to regulations, canceling pipelines, and uh, more importantly, looking at at high taxes. And so we're not going to be able to supply. We're short 4 million homes right now that people would buy if they were there. So I think 
this generation doesn't remember inflation or stagflation. But if you really have this enormous demand and the government is anti-production, then you're going to have too many dollars chasing too few goods very quickly. And so we will get to inflation eventually. So. Inevitable. So. How long, Conrad? I guess I'm, I'm thinking, excuse my beltway or swamp lens, but I'm thinking 2022 by then. I don't think the official uh, yardstick for inflation is accurate. Anyway, as I understand it, they leave gasoline and most foodstuffs out of it. I mean, I think they, they designed for themselves uh, a, a, a method of measurement that is absolutely right. By, Houses are not underestimates inflation. Yeah. So I mean, you right. remember when in stagflation, you remember in, in the Carter era and so on, with a principal item was gasoline. As I understand it, the average yeah, increase. Yeah. Gasoline is 150 percent in the United States across the country. It varies, of course. But no, I, I, Bill, I think that I think it's going to it's going to come. It'll come quickly. And when the first day that that there is any suggestion that quantitative easing, the scam of a subsidiary of the Treasury buying uh, unsold government bonds that the private sector won't buy at that price private sector, including China and Japan and everybody, and, and the just paying for them with notes from the subsidiary, which you'd get a sharply formulated letter from the Ministry of Justice or the Department of Justice in the United States if you did it in the private sector. Uh, the, the, as soon as there's a hint of that, the reaction in the financial community is going to be one of absolute panic. Yeah, the short answer is, Bill, it's already here. It's just that the consumer price index doesn't include capital expenditures, and they call houses and cars capital expenditures uh like a, but they're not and uh, that's what everybody needs is a house a car food and gas and they're all going up very quickly and it's not going to end well because what, what can the fed do they they don't have any more stimulatory tools if we go into a stagflation or a recession as we get inflation because we have zero de facto zero interest rates we got huge deficits we got a big debt and there's not much more that we can do and i don't know why he would want to stimulate a, a consumer demand when we were going out coming out of a quarantine when it was it was already existing it was pre-existing and then at the same time cut back on the producing class that would supply that demand and that's what he's doing and he needs zero interest rate or he can't he can't service the debt with and include his other agendas so it's there's going to be a reckoning. I think it will become before the uh, the November election of next year. You're just saying it's there, but we don't, you know, but we don't feel it. Watching Fox News, you guys are familiar with Fox News, and you know this warning and that warning from Republicans: don't do this, don't do that. And then the segment ends with, and the market hit another record today. And the optimism of the Biden administration and the polling of, you know, Biden seems to be doing things that are right unless you break it down by particular issues. Is that the same discrepancy we're talking about? It seems to me that that kind of that part of economics is half psychology and half grade three arithmetic. And the psychology part is the horrible man is gone. We are doing everything that should be done. There's no more racism. All the racists are, are, are uh, you know, facing a terrible reckoning. And all the victims of racism, which is virtually everybody except white people, uh, are, are, are now going to be treated properly. And it's wonderful. It's what the founders should have been doing when they were uh, you know, beating their slaves and things or selling them. And, and uh, I, I have the impression that what's happening, what do I know? But in the, amongst the powers that be in Washington and the administration and the Democratic leadership in the Congress, it, it, they have just taken everything the most um, energetic part of their coalition wants and put it through 
and created in the media, which is so obedient to them, uh, this, this levitation of national happiness. These wonderful things are happening and that the evil man is being buried. But they don't realize almost half the country actually supports the evil man. And what they're doing is going to be a disaster. And, and they will yeah. not retain the following they have for one day after the panic you correctly predicts or several of the other symptoms we've talked about arrive. And they're coming. I, I, yeah. I mean, that's my view anyway. No, none of these issues yeah. that he's advanced, the open borders, the court packing, the limitation on uh, fossil fuel exploration production has 50%. No, nowhere near it. And so he's, he's relying yeah. on the exhilaration of coming back after 13 yeah. months lockdown and a booming economy. And that's the only thing that will save him. And if it doesn't save him, I don't think it will. I think we're going to start to see a stagnation at the end of the year. I found this fascinating. I wanted to read it to you. wonder if you knew this. Uh, this was from Jim Tish. You all in the hotel business and so on, Tishes of New York. But Jim Tish, I guess a liberal Democrat, very smart guy. Under today's rules, a taxpayer living in Florida keeps 27.3% more of his income than if he lived in New York City. With the new tax hike, the Florida millionaire will retain $59 of every $100 he earns. The New York City resident will keep $43. I talk about a difference now here, not country to country, but state to state. Florida, $59 out of 100, you'll keep New York, $43. No wonder they're moving, guys, huh? Yeah. Well, look, they, they managed to, to keep that balloon in the air for a long time because of the mystique of New York City. I mean, everybody in the country, when they're 18 years old, wants to move to Manhattan and hobnob the famous people. But uh, you, you, that, that's fine up to a point. The inexorability of what's really happening is in the numbers you just said. I mean, people vote with their feet. I mean, what do you, of course, you, why not move to Florida? You not only make more money, the weather's better. I think the question is, as Conrad pointed out, is what are, what are, how high are Manhattan tax, cultural, social, et cetera? Are, they, are people willing to, to pay to be in Manhattan? And when you look at the weather, it's not the weather. Now you look at crime, it's not, it's not a safe place. It's not a Giuliani city, clean city anymore. It's a divided city. It's got a lot of social chaos. So when people look at Florida, they thought, well, it's not New York, but weather, good governance, safety, it's a much better place to live. And with one th- irony of all this is the Zoom culture that took off during the quarantine has kind of convinced people they can do a lot more from home than they thought. No one in his right mind can take either de Blasio or Cuomo seriously. I'm just thinking why people go to New York. I mean, to your right, both my sons, after finishing business school, you know, went to New York for the obligatory year or two. But I asked them, their, their younger friends aren't doing that now. Yeah, well, my so. daughter did the same. She moved to London and she's, uh, she's married to a Frenchman. And, she, you know, she was glad to do it, but glad to move. Yeah, very interesting. Anyway, let's, uh, let's move on. Shootings, cops, safety in minority communities. Victor? The structure that's creating these uh, incidents, exposures, strategies, whatever vocabulary we use, hasn't been discussed and it hasn't changed. And that is that in the inner city, we have an inordinate crime rate of black males. They commit about 50% of the murders and they're only about 6% of the population. And I think of 11 million people are arrested every year. Uh, They're arrested at three times their proportion. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. Maybe it's racism, maybe it's structural inequality, maybe it's cultural uh, decline of the family. But the point is, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the reality that then police are in that environment and they're going to run into people that have an arrest record and they feel 
that are going to be more prone to shoot back or shoot them than, say, an Asian American or white American or even a Latino based statistically. And then we have these overreactions and then we have the, the predictable result. And that is the person is often shot uh, wrongly or unlawfully overreaction or a police officer panics. And it only takes 1% of the 11 million arrests, or much less than that, for these incidents. Nobody says, well, there's 11 million people arrested. This, or police shoot more whites uh, than blacks every year, or maybe they're overrepresented, African-Americans, based on their population, but they're uh, as shooters. But they may be underrepresented as shooting. If you look at the, the number of people who are arrested and their profile, in other words, white or overrepresented by police, shooting them based on their numbers that are arrested. So we all argue about the statistics, and then we look for an iconic incident. Now we're at the situation where every time somebody is shot or every time there's a shooting of any sort, whether police involved, we all play this game. I hope it's not this person's race, and I hope the victim is not or is this person's race. Yeah. And then we make the necessary adjustments. And it's, uh, yeah. it's a bit more sinister than that, I think, in that I have the impression that the Democratic media and the national political media remains rabidly democratic but 95 percent of them and they, they're doing a countrywide media watch every day to find out where in, in this one third of a billion people in the united states has a white police person shot a black person or, or a person not white anyway and and uh and there's going to be one somewhere I mean, there is just in a third of a million people. Then we highlight that we have demonstrations. We have, you know, liquor stores smashed up and police in really difficult confrontations. And we run that one for a week or so. And then we start again. The key, the key, in my opinion, is when does the vast majority of sensible, law abiding, decent, reasonably patriotic, non-racist, relatively broad minded Americans. I mean, they're not all saints. They're not all uh, Douglas MacArthur's, but they're decent people. When do they finally say, I am not going to take this anymore. This is a good country and most of us are good people and the hell with them. I mean, and that, it will happen. Do you mean those people in the minority community or those people overall in America? No, no, I, I'm including the majority of all of the minorities in them because I think the majority of every sure. group you can identify sure. except can, you know, recidivist criminals in the U.S. fit that category. It, it works in reverse, too. The, the media not only scans uh, Conrad, but they scan the stories to suppress. So if you have a person committing a felony in the Capitol, Ashley Babbitt, and she's committing a felony by breaking into a window or a window was broke entering it, and she's shot by a, a, apparently an African-American officer, even though there were officers armed where they are, you know, they could have shot her, but he sh shot an unarmed woman. And they, his his rationale was it's a moment he's she's breaking the law she's coming in she had no prior arrest record then that becomes iconic of an armed insurrection and we'll never know the race of the shooter and that the entire investigation was suppressed if you're a white woman and you're shooting an african-american person in the same situation at least in the terms of committing a felony by resisting arrest then we're going to learn all everything about her. We're going to see her picture. We're going to know where she's lived. Her family's going to be harassed. And the rationale or the subtext of this whole asymmetry is the historical uh, racism, Jim Crow or whatever, and that there is some truth to that. But right now in the here and now, what Conrad said, when are the people, 
the people, that's not sustainable. They look at those two situations and they say, what is the rule right now in the United States, whether we identify an officer that shoots somebody who's unarmed? I want to know. And what is the story about whether the unarmed person is noble or ignoble based on what? Their prior criminal record, what the type of felony? And there is no systematic uh, accounting for it. So it's all hodgepodge, except we all know that the media and the left are trying to use these things to perpetuate an agenda. One aspect of this, where does this go? I I used to teach at a police academy and rode around with the cops and, you know, fascinating. So, you know, my sympathies start with the cops. I was saying to my son, gosh, you know, look at that force. They're they're losing 20, 30 percent of their guys, poor guys. said, no, don't worry about them. They're going to get jobs. They're going to get picked up by, you know, a suburb or a a community that supports them. They'll get jobs. Worry about that city. Is it the case that almost systematically the places that need cops the most are seeing the greatest exodus of the cops because of the demonstrations, the shootings, the other things driving them out? Uh, Well, we have some of these communities now. Uh, you know, talking about changing the rules uh, in terms of police liability and so on. So they're going to leave the New Yorks and the Minneapolis and other places and go to other communities. And is the same effect here that we see in teaching in your state, Victor, when they lowered class size in California, they just lowered the confidence of many classroom teachers because they had to dig deeper and lower. What we got here is for it gives America the United States, the terrible black guy, people who don't live in the U.S. I mean, sensible people in Europe or even in Canada are, are watching their television, seeing all this, and think, good grief, that country's blowing up. What a terrible mess. But the people of the United States realize that it's grossly exaggerated. I mean, it, anyone who lives in Minneapolis knows that most of the police are, you know, reasonable people trying to do their jobs properly. But uh, so, you know, it's it's a bad image, as we saw from the, that insolent Chinese foreign minister at Anchorage a few weeks ago. But practically, Americans know better. I think it's already, that's another occasion we can use the phrase that's already happening. A guy called me not long ago and said, would I come up to San Francisco and speak? And he said, well, of course, you can't drive because it's got the highest crop, uh, property per capita crime rate in any big city. But more importantly, the police will not come to your car if the window sh- windshield's broken because they assume that less than $1,000 will be taken. That won't be a felony in California. The police don't respond. And so that's already happened. This week in the Fresno B, the Fres- Fresno of all places, 700,000 people in greater, it had a 400% increase in crime. And uh, if you want to go to any gun store in Fres- Fresno County and inquire about a firearm, they laugh at you nine to 10 months waiting list, minimum. And so what's happening is people are looking at the news, they're seeing what's going on, they're trying to arm themselves, and they haven't quite channeled that anger into a political movement yet or expression, but they're scared of wokeness, so they just say, you know what, I'm going to make the necessary adjustments on my personal life. And this this extends to everything, I think. They're not going to watch Major League ba- Baseball anymore. They're not going to watch the same degree of the NBA they're going to try to buy a gun. They're not going to go to the big cities and they're going to try to weather the storm, they think, until it passes. And that's a good interpretation. They could get even angrier. Isn't it somewhat like the conditions, only much more amplified, that brought Giuliani and his mayor and brought Reagan Absolutely. in as governor? Absolutely. I mean, they don't think that so because they think that. You know, since Ronald Reagan, we've had, say, 11 million people here enter California illegally. 
and we have a much different demographic. So we had three things come into California. We had 11 million people come from Mexico illegally, and they have children now. And that's a huge, that's the largest ethnic group in the state. We had about 10 million of the Pete Wilson, George Dukmajian, Ronald Reagan voted leave. They left. These were the small business entrepreneurial class. And then we got this $5 trillion market capitalization in Silicon Valley. And they basically said, we'll pay the bill. We're immune from the consequences of our own ideology. Go to it. And that's that's what ruined the state. And the idea that it's a model, in the words of Michael Bloomberg, or even de facto from Joe Biden, is really scary because it's a failed state. And we're going to replicate and Xerox this all over the nation, apparently. Recently arrived people from across the border ultimately going to be the largest group of discontented and exploited people. Then they, they don't, they don't like being robbed. I, I think so. I think that's why Donald Trump got 36% of the Latino vote. That's why 50%, 45 to 50 vote or poll, I should say that they want the border closed. And then when you talk to them, they don't talk about ideology. They'll say, Hey, Victor, do they do the transgender stuff up at Stanford when you go up there during the week? Or they'll say, you know, we don't want gangs, uh, in our schools because they go after kids that don't speak Spanish, Mexican-American kids that don't, and that's most of them. And then they say things like, I don't want bilingual education when I want to get my kid into, you know, UC Davis and he needs advanced placement courses. The electricity is too high. We don't have enough water. The gasoline is higher. It's a dollar higher than anywhere else. So that's what they're saying, but they haven't, they haven't galvanized into a silent majority angry group yet. And I think they will. The elites are out of touch with the rank and file Mexican voter, I think, Mexican-American voter. Are we going to see maybe not fewer in the end police officers, but less competent, less able police officers as we see the exodus of a lot of veterans from our major cities, which could mean not only that cops aren't you know, stopping and frisking and maybe, you know, more reluctant to, to confront uh, scenes on the street or in cars. But we're going to have a less competent police force in just those communities that need it the most. I think it's inevitable, isn't it? We're already seeing that again. I don't want to be a broken record, Bill, in the sense that we have police officers that are corporal. They have they have bodies and you can see them, but they're not answering a lot of calls. So you have yeah. depoli- the, they're depoliced. And I know a few of them, and they will tell you that if they get a call from a particular area, they will go very slowly to that area. And if they see a particular type of crime being committed, and they feel that that might put them in a position that could ruin their career or endanger, they're not going to respond to it. And when they pull over somebody, I just had a talk with a highway patrolman this month. And when they see somebody doing something that they would otherwise pull them over for, and they... This is counterintuitive because we're told that they profile minorities or they profile uh, unfairly poor whites with tattoos. But actually, they do the opposite now. They say to themselves, as he said, we're always looking for the middle class felon so we can overlook the uh, the uh, the people who are doing the crime. We want to do something, but we don't want to arrest people that are going to ruin our lives. And I think that a lot of people know that. And that's why you see a lot of more uh, audacious behavior on the part of people here in California when you have no, you know, basically no bail for a felony. And almost everybody in the Fresno B and the Modesto B every day that are arrested, they have a long rap sheet and they know it and they're right back out. And the police know that. And so they feel, why should I arrest somebody and risk my life? He's going to be right back out again. And if I shoot and I do anything wrong, I'm going to have my career ended. And the person knows that. 
and they're going to be more aggressive toward me. And so I, I think you're, we have police in shape and form, but I don't think they're policing the cities uh, in the way that they used to. Yeah, yeah. I noticed uh, just a sidelight on this. We've seen in the last couple of days couple of videos of cops you know stopping people and uh, that one out of new mexico and a guy pulls out his rifle and just kills the cop and then we had this thing in san antonio where unbelievably i mean there's three guys in a truck and they shot the cop in the hand after the routine traffic stop he got his gun i guess it jammed but then he managed to get all three of them extraordinary but at at the end of this story where i was watching they ended with the uh berkeley uh, which will be going to civilian, non-unarmed people doing traffic stops. I'm thinking of the a story, the horses of Sybaris. You know it about the horses yeah. that were war horses that were taught to dance yeah. to the sound of music, of, of trumpets and bugles. And when war came, the enemy came and blew the bugles, and the horses didn't advance, but they they danced. I think all this pl- hinges on what does the upper middle class, bi-coastal professional class do? So if you talk to them, okay. heretofore here they thought, you know what, because of my position and money and influence and ideology, this doesn't apply to me. If you're Nancy Pelosi, I can have a Napa estate with a big wall. But down the ladder just a little bit, if you're in the Berkeley Hills, anybody who's been to the Berkeley Hills knows that that area is some of the most affluent on the border of Piedmont areas in the world. And these are very left-wing Silicon Valley and academic and lawyers and stuff. When that crime, and they have private patrols, but when that crime affects them, or I've been talking to some people at Stanford, and I didn't realize in the new infrastructure bill, there's a provision for high-density uh, low-cost housing that shall be deliberately put into suburbs. Yes. Oh, yes. High-income high income. So these are very oh, yes. liberal people worried that Atherton or Hillsborough suddenly would have a Redwood City population or East yes. population. It's very funny because, I mean, it might be good. I live in an area that has one of the lowest, I think the per capita income is $13,000 a year. I have no problem with it. I have most of my friends aren't white. But for those people who virtue say, yeah. and they're very, they can't handle that because I, as we know, Not in their virtue, neighborhood. No, virtual signaling is a medieval penance for them. It's a mechanism psychologically of sounding caring and wonderful in the abstract so they can justify in the concrete. They're very exclusionary people. Get a high rise close to Chevy Chase. I know this is debated in our old neighborhood intensely. They're thinking of converting the public library in Upper Connecticut Avenue into high rise uh, housing, not for the, 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 the normal residents of that area, bordering on lovely tree line Chevy Chase and very liberal neighborhood. They're not happy. They're not happy at all. In that regard, Victor, if you could go on another minute, because you brought it to my attention, and I think to Conrad's admissions policy at the schools, some of the schools, where these uh, same people aspire to send their children. Yeah, we only have really hard data from four or five schools, and Princeton's been in the news because um, it's released its... uh, admissions and you know there's 68 depending on what you call so-called white 68 to 71 percent of the population is white 32 percent were allowed into the princeton freshman class i think it was 15 percent white males who cares about princeton's uh, entering class not most americans but very powerful influential americans do and i had a couple maybe three or four i talked to and their children are the type that go to very good schools 
4.3, not a B on their entire transcript. ACE, the S-A-C-T, curricular, extracurricular activities are just perfect and designed to be so in the mind of an admissions officer. And yet they didn't just get turned down at a Stanford or Yale or Princeton. They got turned down everywhere. Part of it was that they let some of the students repeat uh, their first year. They didn't think very many would because of the Zoom and, and a lot did. But more importantly, they have doubled and tripled the amount of minorities and I've been told they're also widely def, uh, redefining what constitutes somebody who's a minority. And so, and I think Asian males were also a group that was discriminated against, it seems like. And I don't know the effect of that, but when you're very liberal and you say, and you spend enormous amounts of money and you really put a high premium on the brand that your child has by going through the BA degree from this school or the PhD from that school, and then it, you did everything perfect and it didn't work, then your reaction is what? Do you, do, do you really say, I'm so glad my child could have got into Princeton, but he's now on the altar of woke sacrifice. I'm so glad he sacrificed him for the, the greater cause. I don't think they do that. Oh, I don't think they do. Conrad? No, I, look, I, I, we're all waiting for the turn. It's, it's, it's a levitation. They, all the people whose conduct we're criticizing are just marching the whole country out to the end of the limb. But that's where they are. I mean, I, I think we got it earlier. They, I mean, I'm not as up on the polls as you men probably are, but I see these polls that show that 90% of Americans, all Americans, all categories of Americans, want some kind of a process at the border. To, to admit people in, a, in an orderly way. Uh, over over 80% disapprove of all these riots. I mean, even ones who have some sympathy for the rioters don't think rioting is the way to deal with it. And, and at some point, the majority imposes itself. The key is when does the media flip? And the key to that, I think, is when do alternate sites. I think that uh, at, at some point, people are, 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 are going to say this won't do. And the media, in order to salvage something, from their prison franchises, they're going to have to change their tune and, and give a more truthful picture that, of what's happening. And what, what would that be, though? What makes them do that? Is it, is it people just collectively, quietly, as conservatives <clears throat> and traditionals do? They don't buy Coca-Cola. They don't watch a baseball game. And the numbers are not five, but 10, 30, 50 million. Is I, it, I think it, I think you've got a two-track strategy. You've got the free market that you've just described. Yeah. The, I, I will not watch these people. If they yeah. despise our flag, I don't care how talented yeah. they are. I've got other things to do. And the other is um, uh, that there'll be a decisive incident, like uh, the the hearings before Mr. Welch in the McCarthy area, you know, where have you no decency, sir, that kind of thing. Suddenly a dramatic incident and and, and people turn. And even a huge country like this turns on a dime. Bill and Connor, do you feel? Do you? I I, had, I can't answer this question. Do you feel that at his age, seventy-eight, and he's going to be a one-term president, that Joe Biden has now said, "I'm going to be the next FDR. This thing is not sustainable, but I'm going to push it all through with executive orders, pack the court, do every crazy thing in the world, and I will be known as the most progressive." Or the people around him think he will be known as the most progressive president in history. And after me, the deluge. I don't really care what happens in the midterms. I don't really care what happens in 2022. The progressives will love me forever. And I don't care about these polls. Every You're right. It's court packing. It's 90, 80% yeah. against it. Same thing with voter ID. 70% want it. So there's no consensus on any of these. And he must think, you know what? I have momentum now. There's a high yeah. I'll push it through and then it'll blow up and I'll tear down Samson's temple and I'm done with it. 
It seems to that said, and he's a hero for the next 300 years. Is yes. A reform? Yeah, I believe that. I believe that's a combination yeah. of diminished capacity, old age, and the, this legacy danced in front of him by people. Look, I mean, you know, he had that meeting with these historians. You know, the timing of that, you know, Obama getting the Nobel Prize after how many months in office? What was it? Two, three? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, by and, anticipation. And by, and, and Biden having the uh, having the historians his place in time, there was someone said you know about, about Biden he's not as good now as he was in his prime and his prime wasn't really very good, uh, so I, you know he's being swayed by these folks and, who are full of passion and vigor and energy and vision. No one ever accused Bernie of not having vision. Uh, so yeah, no, I think you're right. I want to come back to your uh, unhappy resident there of uh, of Chevy Chase or. Uh, uh, the suburb who has uh, expended all this money and hope and lots of phone calls in, uh, in anticipation of the child getting into one of these schools. This is a white family, but now the white numbers are so far down, exacerbated. You know, the, the point you're making, Victor, this may be them rethinking their wokeness. Uh, the Harvard Westlake School, I'm sure you know it. Uh, Victor there in the LA area, I don't know, $50,000 a year prep school, where in addition to them promising, in effect, you know, your kid will get into some great place. They're putting through parents through the most grueling kind of confessional sessions. You know, I am, I am privileged. I, I am sorry. I am white. I am sorry. And so people are, you know, swallowing all of this stuff. Uh, No doubt, you know, it's uh, painful to, to take in, but they're doing it because, hey, that recommendation out of there is important for Stanford. But odds of it happening may be less. This could really infuriate. Yeah, especially when you add the idea that there's a lot of cynicism that apparently there are children with less white male children with less uh, impressive credentials that are being admitted at Stanford in the Ivy League because of donations up to $10 million. That really gets people angry. That's what the first thing they all talk about. I think it's also going to, I think it, it introduces this question, are these brands as marketable as they used to be? Yeah. This new sort of internet. What And, be, and because of the quality of curriculum, if I look at the Stanford curriculum today, yeah, sure, sure. and I look at it from 40 years ago, it's not, it's a joke. And when I look at all, I had a friend who was a CEO overseer and he said something to me. He said, I don't really care uh, when I hire people. Yeah, I hire them for Harvard or Stanford, but I don't really care about their coursework because I know it's a joke. But I only do it because they save me the trouble because they have high test scores and GPAs and maybe they can teach them something because I don't expect them to know anything. And it was just they did the work for me. And now I'll be there. It used to be meritocratic, but if it can't do that and it's no longer meritocratic, what, what's the purpose? Uh, what, what's the brand worth? It's, it's like a cow with a brand that from a bankrupt uh, ranch, you know, who cares? Remember, they always float this exit SAT. If you, if you don't trust high school GPAs and therefore you have to have an SAT to find out what really qualified student is, why don't you have an exit SAT so we actually know how good you, how well, and people have suggested that the SAT they take as seniors would be lower as, than the one. Yeah. I've never understood the extreme emphasis placed on what university you went to in the U.S., other than, you know, there were good times for your for your parents, so there'll be good times for you. I mean, not just fun times, but good times. I'd like to put one question to you. Are you guys resigned to the fact that this program of Biden's is actually going to be adopted? I mean, he, he got COVID through, but 
Do you think that they're going to get away with this tax increase? It doesn't sound to me they will. And that's got everything besides the capital gains and the income bracket tax. And it's bringing back the SALT deductions, too, for these high states like New York and California. You can st- you can now deduct all of your hundreds of thousands of dollars of state taxes over $10,000. That's, that's You're rewarded be- for voting for poor governors. Yeah, yeah $70 billion will <laughs> take from the Treasury. Yeah, and then there's yes. also the estate tax. It's going to go up from $11 million exemption maybe down to two. That's going to kill a lot of mid-sized farms. So it just depends, I suppose, how many crazy things are in it and whether they can convince. As I understand it, they can only do reconciliation once a year and whether they can redefine it and push it through this year as, as not reconciliation without a majority vote. Yeah. That's what they're trying to do. I think what Victor said is right. I would say the answer to your question is yes, but with modifications. Maybe the most important person in Washington now for a lot of reasons, Joe Manchin. I think he's going to sit hard on 25 and not 28. And maybe there'll be other people sitting hard on other aspects of this, such as what uh, Victor was talking about. But he's going to get most of it one way or another. I don't think it'll be through reconciliation. I think it'll be some way of getting something other than reconciliation that they're creative in their interpretation of. Yeah, we keep talking about the polls, and I do, 70% against this, 60% against this. But he still has a honeymoon where he has 54, 55% if those polls are accurate, Biden does. But I don't know to what degree the electorate has changed or it's vent- it just lets off steam. But a lot of the things that bother us and bother other people, the types of people who are bothered the most are kind of live and let live moderates and conservatives. They don't boycott. They don't cancel culture. They don't organize unless they're really pushed like the Tea Party movement or the hard hats during the 60s. And that's to me the question. At what point does your quiet American finally say, you know what, I've got to I've got to not buy this. I've, I, I've got to speak out. I should tell that re-educator that I'm not going to this train. I don't know when that point comes, but it's not going to, it's sort of like what, at what point do the third doors, you know, crash the building and say, we're going to kill Robespierre. I don't want to say kill, but no, yeah, more, yeah. no more Jacobins. And that it takes a lot of uh, provocation to get the American quiet classes angry enough to mobilize. That's a great question for our audience, by the way. In a minute, I will tell you how to write this uh, show if you're enjoying this podcast. But uh, what Victor and uh, Conrad were just talking about, what is that point? Where is that point where the person who's not a Tea Party type or someone who watches and studies this stuff as as we do, but just goes about his business and kind of you know live and let live? At what point does that person get angry? We'd, we'd love your thoughts on that. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Great stuff. That does it for today's show. Want to join the discussion? Email this show at scholarsandsensepodcast at gmail.com. Share the show with your family and friends. Subscribe, rate, review. For Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hanson, I am Bill Bennett, and we'll talk again soon.